Hello and welcome to today's episode of Platinum Talks Wealth. Emmy-nominated journalist Jennifer Rogers Markwell changed gears in her television career when she realized the need to help women make sense of investing. She regularly hosts educational workshops to empower women and others to take charge of their financial future. Now, join your host, Platinum Wealth Management President Jennifer Rogers Markwell as she leads us into the world of money memories, money infidelities, and how these can mold our relationships relationship with our personal finances as adults. Let's dive into today's episode. Hi, it's Jennifer Rogers Markwell with Platinum Talks Wealth Podcasts. And today we're joined by Diana Greshchuk. So would love to hear more about you, what you do and all the hats you wear. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. I'm Diana Greshchuk. I'm a CPA in the state of California. I'm the owner and founder of Fan Your Flame LLC. It, I do financial literacy coaching, and I'm what I call a trauma-informed financial literacy coach. And by day, I work as a VP of fund accounting and finance in the private equity space in Los Angeles. So tell us more about the literacy side, because I feel like that is one avenue that when we were growing up, wasn't out there enough, right? We're seeing more of that now, which is fantastic, but I still feel like it's a very, very important thing. I agree. You know, I'm, I'm 41, so I did not get an education in financial literacy. In fifth grade, I maybe had someone who was a guest speaker from a bank come and show us how to write a check, and they gave us photocopies. But that's not the world we live in anymore. And when you think about literacy, you know, if you think about adult literacy, it's maybe learning to read when you're older. For me, financial literacy is about learning a new language. It's learning to read, write, speak, communicate, converse in, manage, and make good decisions about your finances. And it's really funny. I've heard this this term passed around in schools that they're teaching now, family economics. It's not the same. Interesting. I haven't heard that terminology. What, delve into that for me. I think it's part of a social studies curriculum at a, at a random school in New York that I've heard about. But they said, oh, you know, when I asked them, are you getting any financial literacy in schools right now? Well, you know, my son has a, a family economics class. Oh, OK. What's that about? Oh, it's about getting credit cards and, and money and, and spending. And it's like, wow, is that really all we're teaching? Are we not teaching about credit scores and impacts that spending and getting credit cards can have? Wow. And there's a massive deficiency, as you know, in the literacy space. So first and foremost, I'm about education. I'm about making sure that everyone has the ability to approach money with confidence and equality because I want to democratize access to the education to make more money, to make your dreams come true, because it doesn't just belong with the 1%. We all have the capability. There's enough money out there. Yes. Keep going. Yes. <laughs> Abundant. Yes. I love it. All of that. I, I mean, truly, like, it, it's interesting, really, who you're talking to, where they're from, what their background is. I, there's definitely that tie I, I've noticed from everybody, regardless of nationality or whatnot, like there's not enough education there. There's just not. Um, I, I mean, I've talked to folks who are, you know, rainbow polka dotted, you know, 
everything across the board, right? And regardless, that's the one I think key that I'm finding is that education was never a solid foundation for anybody. Yeah, exactly. And I have a hypothesis as to why that is because the people that aren't educated that are easily swayed are easy to control. So there are those that want to seek control and keep others underneath them. And so it's very easy to control others when they don't know what's going on and when they don't know how to do for themselves. It is a cage that you're in when you're not educated. So the, the best thing you can do for yourself, the best investment you can make in yourself is knowledge and that literacy component. And I think that's where these conversations are so invaluable, right? I started this mainly for the whole educational side. Like, how can we learn? I feel like everybody's always learning, regardless of what you do or how much you know, you're still learning, right? I, I truly feel that. Just by doing this podcast, I've, I've learned so many different perspectives from different people that's been eye-opening and fascinating as well. So we've been talking through, you know, money memories, where your original money memory came from, what that was, how you felt, and then how that molded your relationship as an adult with money. Yeah, let's go into it. So I can tell you one of my first money memories was as a child in my bedroom, hearing my parents argue about it in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I could hear them yelling. And there were things like my dad being in and out of a job or you know, somebody spending money that the other spouse didn't know about and then not feeling like they were in control and so feeling like they wanted to take back some control and going out revenge shopping and just doing all kinds of incredible things that are tied to big emotions when it comes to money. And so hearing my parents arguing about money, I grew up, number one, not ever wanting to argue about money with my spouse or with anybody. And so in my meaning maker of a mind when I was little, I made that mean that I need to get a job and make enough money so that I don't have to worry about it. And that's what was drilled into me growing up is you're going to grow up, you're going to go to college, you're going to get a and you're going to work and earn your money. And, and that's what you have to live to, to work, to live, to look forward to. And so for me, that shaped everything because I can remember the day sitting and filling out my college application and saying, yeah, I want to I want to major in, in finance because I'm looking around and there's a lot of accountants and finance people that are never out of a job. So if I always want a job, I'll do that. Had nothing to do with passion, had nothing to do with talent. It just so happens that I've been talented at it. And growing up, I always wanted to be the treasurer in the clubs. So, I mean, there was a little bit there. But at the same time, I didn't follow my dream. No one dreams of being an accountant, you know? <laughs> Some people do, probably. I mean, maybe there are people out there that want to be actuaries too. I get yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, how did that progress? And so you did that. You, you heard your kind of family environment. You went to school. You're like, I'm going to have a job. It's going to be, you know, what it is. It's, and I feel like that was a mindset for a lot of folks too, right? It's that nine to five, eight to five, six realm, right? Like this is going to be my, you know, punch in, punch out lifespan. Like how yeah. did you evolve from that too? So what did I do? As soon as I graduated from college, I went right into the big four accounting firms. So it's almost like joining the ranks in the military, like you're earning your stripes out there. I got my CPA license, but it was rigorous. During our busy seasons, there were 100-hour work weeks sometimes. One of your key metrics that your performance was measured on and that you were remunerated and compensated for was how much you worked. 
what a soul killer that is. Like they taught you just this constant cycle of hustle and that you can only make a lot of money if you work hard, which isn't true at all. I could make money in my sleep. Leisure is a money-making activity if you let it be. But that's the thing. It, it becomes this trap and this mindset of I just have to work hard. So I, you know, put on 30 pounds, developed a copious drinking problem, you know, just trying to deal with those hours and that lifestyle. My relationship suffered and I eventually got out of it because it just wasn't sustainable for my own mental well-being and, and health, yeah. personal well-being. Yeah. So then what happened? I'm like very tied, <laughs> like to the seat of my chair. Gosh. And then what? Tell me more. Well, uh, you know, after I left public accounting and I went into private industry, you know, I really learned how to stretch my legs and find my stride and find the ability to not have to work every weekend to begin yeah. to go back and redevelop my relationships to stop drinking as much, start going to the gym more, eat a little bit better and just start taking better care of myself. You know, I, I, it even shifted again in 2020 when my mother passed away because I'd been working a lot, not necessarily the same hundred hour work weeks, but I had been a neck upper, you know, and I wasn't really thinking with my heart or thinking about what I really wanted from life and what was important to me, you know? I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I had a cat and it just, I sat there asking myself, what am I really doing here? If I get to the last day on earth and I'm sitting there and I see the self that I could have been, and I'm sitting there as the self that I let myself be just by default, am I going to be happy with that? Or am I going to have regrets about a life that I didn't live? And that's powerful. Yeah. And I didn't want to get to my last day on earth and regret anything. And so it began changing how I make decisions. It changed my perspectives on risk and what a real risk really is. You know, like we talk about risk in terms of portfolios and stock portfolios and investments. Like I am making the riskiest investments of my life right now, but it is so aligned with my mission and purpose and it has social impact and it has meaning to me. I'm funding female entrepreneurs with ideas that are disrupting whole industries. You said something earlier that I found was what I thought was profound too. It was you spending money and taking that time to better yourself. That's right. You know, I think that there was for a long time a feeling within me of unworthiness, of unlovability, of not mattering. So it was okay to be another brick in the wall, a cog in the machine at the accounting firm in this industry, just as a person, as a consumer, it's easy to get lost and think that you're not valuable. And, you know, we were raised like a kid, like when I was raised growing up, you're going to college, you're getting a job. My parents saw me as an asset. And when I lost my mother, I knew that I couldn't wallow in the pain and the grief. I had to get out of it because she would want me to be happy. So I was worth investing in. She would want me to be happy. I am lovable. And I think everybody is. That's, that's what I want everybody to know is that you may only get this one life. Like I love the lyrics of that song. You might only have one match, but you could make an explosion. To make that big difference in the life that they have here and the time that they have. We have to make that difference, whatever that looks like, and find that happiness, whatever that is. 
Yeah. And you're not going to find that happiness outside yourself. And I'll tell you right now, a little insider tip. It's not about the money. It's never about the money. It's what money can get you. Why does everybody want money? It's not for the love of money itself. It's for providing for your family. It's for those things you really care about. So I had to go through a journey to figure out what the hell I really cared about. Yet it's leaning into it as a tool, right? I feel like there's definitely the folks that do it right. They lean into it as a tool to create that time to lean into that happiness, whatever that is. It's not filling the void with things, right? It's not having the money thing moment. I mean, which I suppose it can be for certain people in certain situations, but it's finding the time to be in that moment. Because I feel like time ultimately is the biggest, most valuable asset that there is. There's so many great non-monetary assets and time is definitely the biggest one. I think another one, attention, energy, giving your attention to someone, giving your thoughtful communication to someone, your vitality. You know, there's so many non-monetary resources yes. out there. And so to work 65 years or 69 years and then retire, what vitality do you have left? I want to live a life with passion and not wait until the end to have that and then figure out how to have passion because I never had it. Yeah. And you can do both at the same time, right? Like you can enjoy what you do, make a difference with what you're doing and utilize money as a tool to do more of that. A thousand percent. Yeah, for sure. And going back to those memories, it's also, you know, when you're looking at money, it's maybe 10% managing the money itself. 90% of it is managing your emotions around money. Yes. Those memories create a traumatic response in your body. My nervous system gets nervous when I hear people fighting about money because it triggers that old programming that I set, that I made meaning of when I was little. And now I have a nervous system where hearing people argue about money, I could have won anything less for anybody. It, it, I think the money memories is such a fascinating conversation, which is why I did this, quite frankly, right? To talk it through, to see where that is, to go, you know, delve into that psychology behind it. And then also, I, like another topic that's probably talked about even more delving into money memories is money infidelities, right? You, you hear the stories. It could be, you know, a neighbor down the street, Aunt Sally, whatever, or something you experienced of, wow, this horrible thing happened financially that devastated these folks because of an affair, because of whatever. But the definition of infidelity isn't just a big, hairy, scary word, right? It can be, but it could be as, as simple as something like I'm buying, you know, shoes that I clearly don't need, but I don't want my partner to know because he or she's going to give me crap about it, right? So I'm going to hide it. Tell me about money infidelities for you. What does that look like? What have you experienced? What are you open to sharing? Yeah, so... You know, I think as I began working on myself and the inner mindset work, I really got what I call financially naked with myself. I got really freaking honest and I stood in front of that mirror and I looked at what my financial situation was actually like. And so let's talk about a decision that I made after my mother passed away. I, during COVID, like a lot of people, I bought a Peloton. I really liked it. And I was like, wow, if I would be a consumer of Peloton, I think my, my main primary four-year-old investing strategy is if they get my dollars as a consumer, then that means they're doing something right. I want to invest in them. 
So I invested in Peloton. But unfortunately, that was right before they experienced all kinds of things as a company, you know, including, you know, their auditors deciding and, and investigating and looking and saying, hey, we think there's actually fraud here and around how you're projecting out inventories, how you're looking at things in your records and making assumptions about them to account for them in your financial statements. And those financial statements are what investors are making material investing decisions on. The stock tanked and then getting fulfillment, getting all this stuff. So long story short, I've probably lost almost $100,000 on Peloton stock, but you know, it's been a great learning opportunity. <laughs> and it wasn't about being unfaithful to myself. You know, I, I think back to Star Trek and that quote that Captain Jean-Luc Picard said, you can do everything right and still not succeed. So I did everything right. I was dollar cost averaging. I was, you know, eyes wide open. And because of that learning opportunity, I now invest in female entrepreneurs that need a leg up. I'm holding the door open and holding out a hand to help people that are coming after me because you know what? I didn't get here without someone holding the door open for me and grabbing my hand. And I want to pass that on. That's important to me. Yeah, helping others along the way, whatever on the educational side, I think is, is empowering too. So before we start to wrap things up, I always ask, what are some of the things that you're doing in your household, tips or tricks to save money, right? Everybody has some magical ones out there, whether that's, you know, I'm, you know, shopping online, I'm using coupons, whatever that looks like. What are some tips or tricks you could share? Yeah, I have two, actually. You're going to get a twofer from me right nice. now. Nice. So number one, I like to call it a subscription scrub. Take a look at all your subscriptions. For some folks out there that love apps, there are apps that let you track your subscriptions. Go look at all your Amazons, Netflix, Hulus, Disney Pluses. Do you need 10 streaming services? Can you do a filtering process? and really clean house with your subscriptions and scrub them. Also take a look at, you know, if you have annual subscriptions that are coming due, not only do you have to figure out how to translate them into your monthly budget so you're setting aside money so you can pay them when they come due, but when the company set up pricing that way, they put the onus on you as a consumer to track, oh, hey, every May this renews. So every May I'm going to have a surprise $400 that pops up. So having a way to track your subscriptions as well is going to be really important because it empowers you to be able to look at the list, figure out what you're using, what you're not, and get rid of it. So then my second tip is going on an asset hunt around your house, like a scavenger hunt. A lot of people don't think about the assets that they already own. I'm one of those firm believers in gratitude and, you know, my brain is wired to show me loss, but if I look for gain, I have a laptop. I have some monitors, I have assets everywhere. And if in a pinch I needed cash quickly, I could look around and I could sell something. Everything has what's known in accounting as a salvage value. You know, if it's a good, if it's a good asset that you've bought, like a couch, you could sell a couch at the end of its useful life and maybe get some money from it. So that's a great tip to find some extra cash and do a little bit of house cleaning. You're decluttering your subscriptions, you're decluttering your house, and you're making room for new energy. Yeah, those are good ones. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening. And we hope that you'll join us again on our next Platinum Talks Wealth podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, Platinum Talks Wealth, please subscribe and share. 
For more information about Jennifer Rogers Markwell or Platinum Wealth Management, please visit www.platinumwealth.net. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member of FINRA and SIPC. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and their companies are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Platinum Wealth Management.